All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered, be separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked, and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will say to those at his left, you that are accursed, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer to them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In Edwin Abbott's fascinating novella from 1864, uh, it's entitled Flatland. I've, I've mentioned it before, but, but, but in, this, in this novella, all of the characters are shapes. And, and, and what happens is a sphere from a three-dimensional world, which is called Spaceland, descends into this two-dimensional world of flatland. Now, in flatland, the world consists of lines and flat shapes. So, for example, if a, if a triangle turns to the side, right, 
turns to the side, then the other inhabitants of Flatland, all they see is a line, right? So you can imagine the Donnybrook in the two-dimensional realm of Flatland when the enigmatic sphere shows up on the scene, a, a being from the third dimension. The folks of Flatland are, are a rather straightforward bunch, living in a world of length and width, with nary a notion of height nor depth. To them, the world is simply a flat canvas, right? So up and down are foreign concepts in this sort of pancake universe. They're as alien as the idea of a square circle or a, or a, a, a good driver from Ohio. So, so, so when Mr. Sphere pays a visit, cruising through their flat existence, he looks like a, like a strange circle that sort of magically expands and contracts depending on their point of view. And the flatlanders, they lose their minds. They, they, they can't fathom his true sort of spherical glory. He's a, he's a mystery. He looks like a circle to their eyes, but, but inexplicably, he changes sizes as he travels through their wor world. It, 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 it produces a, this giant brain cramp for all of these two-dimensional denizens. Now, the hero of the story is a flatlander named The Square. Now, at first, like all the rest of the inhabitants of his world, The Square can only experience the sphere with a... a a mind that his world has formed for him. And it sees only two dimensions. But the sphere offers him the chance of a lifetime and takes him to spaceland. Now pulled out of his flat existence, Square gets a cosmic noogie from the mysterious sphere. I mean, you just picture it. Square sort of cruising along in his 2D life, and then, bam, he's hoisted into this sort of dizzying realm of spaceland. It's like he's been nearsighted and, and, and squinty his whole life, and someone just slapped on a pair of 3D glasses. Suddenly, there's this whole height thing that, that he's never even dreamed of. I mean, he sees things, real, solid, 3D things, including Mr. Sphere, the tour guide. I mean, it's, it's, it's like he's been watching life on a crummy motel TV with rabbit ears and Bakelite knobs, and, 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 and suddenly he gets this glimpse of reality in 8K. Now, from up there, Flatland is, looks just like a sheet of paper, and its people are, are sort of scurrying around like ants who've lost their picnic. But it's in a real epiphany for Square. He, he, he gets it now. There's more out there than his own flat world would have led him to believe. Ah, but the price, the price of seeing beyond the veil, that's, that's what always gets you, isn't it? When he gets dropped back into Flatland and starts flapping his gums about all this 3D stuff, they treat him like he's got an elbow grown out of his forehead. His grand ideas earn him nothing but cold stares and a, and a one-way ticket to the joint. They arrest him and throw him in jail. 
Now that, it's a real gut punch showing just how tough it is to drop truth bombs on folks who aren't really ready to receive them. You see, seeing stuff that other people can't see can get you in real hot water with the big shots who run the world. Especially if you don't keep it to yourself. That ever happened to you? I mean, I don't mean being uh, thrown in jail for seeing spheres. And I don't mean being mistaken for like the bass player in a garage band or or, or thinking that there's no difference between Coke and Pepsi or or finding out that the America some people want to make great again was a world where the folks who looked like me ran everything and everybody else was forced to readjust their lives every time somebody like me walked into the room. I mean, you picture the world one way and it turns out it's not that way. And, and, and not just like an adjustably small amount of different, but like big 180 degree totally opposite of what you were thinking different. Like everything you thought you knew turns out to be, well, if not completely wrong, then, then, then certainly off by more than just a few clicks. Like that, that you know, perfectly fetching haircut you had in high school in the yearbook, which you thought was a tribute to your timeless fashion sense, a look that you figured would remain in vogue, in perpetuity. And then your kids come along, and they, and they tell you that you look more like Shaggy running out of a broom closet and Scooby-Doo and the tar monster. Then you look more like that than Fred driving the mystery machine with Daphne batting your eyes and hanging on every word he says. Or you're a kid, you go to Baskin Robbins and they have, they have ice cream, right? Perfect. And it's got bubble gum in it. And you think, what? Bubble gum and ice cream? This is the pinnacle of, of gustatory delight, is it not? I mean, it's got ice cream. And bubble gum? I mean, come on. I mean, that's, that's, that's like the 1992 Olympic dream team of food for a kid. And then you grow up and you, it becomes clear that there are perhaps more sophisticated ice cream options out there. And you can't figure out how you ever thought that bubblegum ice cream was a plausible alternative for consumption by anything more sophisticated than a goat. I mean, you were pretty sure that the world worked one way and then you find out that it works a different way. And it's not just with haircuts and ice cream. People often have the same experience of God, don't they? They imagine God is huge and, and powerful and out there, enjoying long bouts of being prayed and sung to and sort of surrounded by majesty and awe. And, and, you know, I mean, while I suspect God is to be found in those things, I now believe there is more to it than that. So when, 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 uh, when we go down to Mexico, I take a group down. We usually stop at the cathedral downtown. It's built in the 16th century. And, I mean, it's, it's 
pretty spectacular. There's gold all over the place, high ceilings, beautiful statuary, polished wood. It's pretty amazing. And if I were to imagine meeting God, it would look something like that, right? Or like in the middle of the National Cathedral in D.C. This brings tears to your eyes. Standing before God on Judgment Day, I picture awe and majesty, plenty of gold, high ceilings. And then I hear about this from our passage today, Jesus coming into his glory. When I think about that, it's, 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 it's lots of gold and, you know, that kind of stuff. When I see lots of trumpets and light and strange-looking beasts and enormous gilded thrones befitting God's glory. But in this parable, Matthew has a slightly different view of what the glory of God is going to look like. There's a throne in Matthew's version, but he doesn't make much out of it, apart from calling it a throne of glory. He doesn't talk about gold, doesn't talk about jewels, which is a little confusing because, I, I mean, I have a pretty good sense of what glory looks like, but Jesus' idea of glory in this passage looks pretty different from mine. What do I mean? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, this, this particular parable of the sheep and the goats is is, is actually more like an apocalyptic parable. Uh, a parable about the end of things, the end times. It's Jesus' last formal teaching to the disciples before the wheels of justice start grinding. Matthew follows this parable by saying, Now, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's immediately following our passage for today. Now, all of which is to say, according to Matthew's timeline, <clears throat> Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats in which he's seated on the throne of glory just a matter of a couple days before he's going to ascend to his real glory on the cross, which, if we're being honest, had very little to do with trumpets or gold or bright lights. Indeed, in the middle of Jesus' glorification on the cross made of wood and not gold, all the lights went out, right? And the sun went dark. So maybe the idea of the Son of Man coming in glory has less to do with an apocalyptic fireworks show at some point way off in the future. Maybe the Son of Man coming in glory has more to do with God's determination in Jesus to live among us and to know the lives that we live rather than about transporting us out of this life. The incarnation, God becoming human, is the most profound act of empathy the world has ever known. God literally committing to live a life in our skin, to see the world through our eyes. And if God does that for us, shouldn't our lives be an attempt to imitate that empathy for others. 
to see not just ourselves in the faces of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the prisoner, but the face of Jesus himself. See, what's troubled me, perhaps about as much as anything, about our current political moment is, is not just the lack of empathy among so many people, but, but, but the idea that empathy might be something that anybody should even care about. I mean, for more years than anyone cares to recall, vast numbers of our neighbors have lived in fear of what the powers and principalities might do to them. Those who claim to follow Jesus the one who identified with the very people threatened by the world we currently occupy, we have a responsibility to see in those same vulnerable people the face of Jesus, at least according to this parable. See, and that's, that's the surprise here, isn't it? When Jesus shows up, it's definitely not what we expected. When, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Shouldn't the heavens be torn apart and the sound of mighty winds fill the air? Shouldn't God come among us with awe and, and, and majesty? Alas, according to Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in glory, what we see are the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the prisoner, because that's where Jesus has chosen to hang out. Indeed, if Matthew has it right, that's who Jesus is. The one who endured the wrath of the state for the love of those under its power and threat. See, I find it worth noting here that the basis upon which judgment is passed lacks a few things that religious people generally trot out as the kind of stuff that God's most concerned about. We usually think of the things that God cares about, like, oh, I don't know. Um, oh, why does Jesus not mention things like the usuals, you know, sexual peccadilloes or, or, or murder, right, or stealing or rooting for the St. Louis Cardinals? I mean, the big stuff that people should be concerned about Instead, Jesus says that we'll be judged not by that stuff, but by how we treat those who aren't in a position to look out for themselves. See, true abomination to God is abusing or ignoring those who, because of their lack of resources, cannot protect, cannot take care of, cannot speak for themselves. See, <clears throat> In this parable, Jesus sounds very much like the prophet Amos, who announced God's anger hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene. God says in Amos, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth push the afflicted out of the way. So why does God identify so strongly with these, the, the, the powerless, the, the hungry, the thirsty? Well, for one thing, I think it's because God created us, all of us. And afterward, God apparently paused to consider 
uh, the fine craftsmanship of God's hands, and God was heard to say, <laughs> that's, that's pretty darn good. No, yeah, that, that, that's excellent. I like that. So it stands to reason that God might take more than a little exception to watching those whom God has so lovingly called forth into existence have their dignity trampled. Their lives are threatened either by those who actively seek to exploit the defenseless or those who commit their violence through neglect. See, God has always seen those who remain invisible those who are unseen to so many. Moreover, God identifies with the dismissed and the downtrodden because of Jesus. Remember, this parable is told about uh, just a couple of days, two days, before Jesus' own death. Jesus, who has challenged the Roman Empire on behalf of the powerless, will soon take on powerlessness himself in its ultimate form because he's going to surrender himself unto the hands of the folks who will throw him in jail and hang him out to dry just for seeing something that nobody else can see. But it's not just something nobody else can see. It's not just something that gets Jesus sideways with the folks up top. What really gets him in trouble is that he sees someone. Someone that nobody else can see. Or perhaps better, he sees a whole world of someones rendered invisible. And maybe the problem isn't the rest of the world can't see, but that they refuse. And Jesus finds himself in hot water because he can't shut up about how God wants the world remade so that they can finally know what it feels like to be seen. See, the potential pitfall of this parable, as Stanley Hauerwas points out, is that it seduces us into believing that we are working to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, care for the sick, and those in prison without actually knowing anyone who is hungry, naked, thirsty, stranger, or sick in prison. In other words, it may be that we need to consider again what the kinds of work Jesus is calling us to might look like. The parable of the sheep and the goats emphasizes our work of mercy among the defenseless, not so that we might secure for ourselves some kind of favor from God, a favor that would be otherwise withheld from us. We, we look for God among the defenseless because we want to know Jesus. I take it that the meaning of this parable is something like, if you want to know Jesus at all, then you better get out and get to know those who are on the margins because out there on the edges of society isn't just where Jesus is. It's who he is. 
we better get some practice then at seeing the unseen. See, it's easy to think of God as, as sort of distant, residing out there, surrounded by the hosts of heaven, removed from the muck and the grime, the disappointment and desperation that so often surrounds us. But the very people it's so easy to ignore in this world, the, the people who always seem to get the short end of the policy stick when it comes to our politics, who cry out to be heard, the people who struggle every day of their lives to be seen. If we're ever truly to find Jesus, it will be among them. It's not what we expected. But with the world the way it is, it's definitely what we need. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.